You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 5, which is where we'll be this morning if you'd like to. Time period was the late 15th century. There was a copper miner who had a son born to him. He wanted his son to be a lawyer. And so as this young man grew up and into his teenage years, he was pursuing just that. He was going to educa- he was getting education in order to become a lawyer. When one night when he was traveling, there was a a storm and there was thunder and there was lightning. He was afraid and when suddenly a massive bolt of lightning hit very near to him and he was thrown to the ground and in a moment of terror he cried out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I'll become a monk. A few days later he did just that. He entered a monastery and began studying as a monk and he he studied and he advanced in this monastery and Eventually, he was given the the opportunity to preach the Bible to the younger monks. But there was something disturbing to this man about the Bible. He said, I did not think about women or money or possessions. Instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me. He said, for I hated that word, the righteousness of God. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that as a sinner before God, and I was extremely disturbed in my conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God. You see, this man, he saw in the the scriptures, he saw the righteousness of God and all he could think of was, I'm not righteous. And so it angered him. It, it caused him to have sleepless nights. He, just, he saw God's righteousness and he saw his unrighteousness. And as he said, he was angry with God. He hated this word, the righteousness of God. But then listen to this by his own testimony. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, In it, righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is is righteous shall live. There I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives as a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel Namely, the passive righteousness of which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. As many of you probably realize, as I was saying, this is the story of Martin Luther's journey to faith in Jesus who provides an alien righteousness that was not his own. Recenter is the title of the mini-series we're doing last week and this week. It's where we look at the truths that were rediscovered by the Reformation. They weren't new truths. They were truths that had been obscured by the church, but that God and his providence allowed the Reformers to rediscover. Last week we looked at Scripture alone, This week, we will see that in this 
these two verses that the, the other four truths of the Reformation are just woven in and out of this passage. So, if you would look with me down at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, before we dive deeply into this verse, we need to look at that first word. The first word there is therefore. Therefore is a hinge word. It means that what's being about to be said hinges on or is based on what has just been said or what has been being said. So what is this verse in, in Romans 5.1 hinged on? Well, it's hinged on the first four chapters of the book of Romans. So let's just look briefly at the message of, of these verses or of these chapters. So Romans 1. God has revealed himself to the Gentiles, that is all of us. God has revealed himself through nature and through our conscience, and we have rejected God. Romans 1.23, and they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God has revealed himself through nature and through our conscience to every human being, and every human being has rejected God. Romans 2, God gave the law to the Jews. The law was never meant to save. The law was meant to show the Jews their sin so that they might trust in, in the promise of God. But instead of using the law this way, the Jews used the law to judge others. So in Romans 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So the Jews were given the law to show them their own sin, but instead they used it to judge others. So the Gentiles, all of us are guilty. The Jews who were given the law, they're guilty. Romans 3. What then? Are Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. God has placed the knowledge of good and evil on the hearts of all mankind. He has given us His law. His law states that the requirement for a verdict of innocence before an almighty God is unbroken righteousness. We, by our own conscience and by the words here in Romans, see that we have not been righteous. We have all been unrighteous, and therefore the just verdict over every one of our lives is guilty. Unbroken righteousness is the only way to please God and enjoy His presence, and we have all failed. We are all guilty. So, the question is, how can we move from being judged by God as guilty to being judged by God as righteous? And I think if you were to ask the majority of the people, even in this city, why do you think God will be, find you acceptable? Their answer will be basically that they are good people and that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. However, most people who get, would give this answer have not thought deeply about this answer because we know by our own reason that this is not a legitimate answer. Take, for example, a, a human judge. If you were to go out and to, and to murder people, mur murder multiple people, 
and we're to stand before a human judge and say, well, look, I did all these good things. We, we know that, that the judge would still find this person guilty of the sin that they committed. But let's say you want to take this, a scale and somehow measure out your good deeds here and your bad deeds here and hope that your, your good deeds will be more weighty than your bad deeds. What does the Bible say about our good deeds? It says they're filthy rags. So in this imaginary scale, all our good, so-called good deeds are actually still on the, on the bad deed side. So the scale is always going to tip towards guilty. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one can be justified by doing the law or by doing good deeds. No one can escape this guilty verdict by any act of human volition. So, how can we as sinners be declared righteous by a just God who has already pronounced us guilty sinners? Paul answers this in Romans 3. So that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Justification means to be declared righteous. We must be justified in order for our verdict to be changed from guilty to righteous. And the means of this justification is faith. We are justified by Faith. Faith alone is the means of justification. Listen to Spurgeon on this doctrine. The way of reaching the state of justification is not by tears, nor prayers, nor humbling, nor working, nor Bible reading, nor church going, nor chapel going, nor sacraments, nor priestly absolution, but by faith which faith is a simple and utter dependence and believing in the faithfulness of God. A dependence upon the promise of God because it is God's promise and worthy of dependence. Justification is by faith alone. Justification brings the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He, that being God, made Him, that being Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, that, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Christ alone is the object of the faith that brings justification. Justification is through the faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. The sole object of our faith is Jesus and His atoning work on the cross. This is one of the fundamental differences between what the Bible teaches, what the Roman Catholic Church of Martin Luther's day, and even what the majority of the people in this very city again would say today. We would say Christ alone. They would say Christ and. If you ask again the average person in this city, what what are you hoping in? It would give you, again, a list of things they do. Well, I'm a good person. I go to church. I work hard. I love my family. I read my Bible sometimes. You ask them about Jesus, they would say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. 
But this is the reality that, that justification through Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. Jesus Christ, as this verse states, is our Lord and Savior. Christ alone has the power to justify sinners. When we place our hope and trust and belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Christ's perfect sacrifice is credited to us. God imputed our sin to Jesus during his sacrificial death on the cross, and thus in legal terms, we have no sin charged to our account. Christ's righteousness is credited to our John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Spurgeon again on, on Christ. If thou puttest one atom of trust in thyself, thou hast no faith. If thou dost place even a particle of reliance on anything else but what Christ did, thou hast no faith. If thou dost trust in thy works, then thy works are antichrist. And Christ and antichrist can never go together. Christ will have all or nothing. He must be a whole savior or no savior at all. So, what is the therefore on the beginning of verse 1 hinging on? It is hinging on this, that we have all been declared guilty before Almighty God, but that by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, we can be justified. So, we're justified. Amen, and let's go home, right? Often I think a lot of us are tempted to treat the, the, the realities of who we are in Christ this way. We think, we're justified. Okay, great. But what does that mean? We need to press into what, what this means that we're justified and the implications of it. So from these verses here this morning, I want us to meditate on and see the, the three blessings of justification. The first... It's found there in verse 1. Read it again with me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. This is not some inner tranquility or calm. This is not the peace of God. This is peace with God. The significance of this word is derived from our standing prior to justification. All right, this is, this is the reality. We are not people who had just missed the mark. Here's the mark, and we just missed it. That's not who we were. We as sinners had completely and utterly rebelled against God. We had made ourselves the enemies of God. You might say, whoa, like, I was five. I was, I was a sinner, but I, was I the enemy of God? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Well, let's, let's look... At Scripture. You just listen as I read Romans 1.18. says, For the wrath of God... I'm sorry. Listen to Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The unjustified sinner 
is the enemy of God, and God is set on pouring out his wrath on the unjustified sinner. Now Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen again, Psalms 5, verse 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, God, hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Doesn't matter if you were justified at five years old or at 55 years old. You had exchanged the glory of God for your own glory. And in doing so, you had declared war on the glory of God. You had made yourself God's enemy. God was set on pouring out his wrath on you. To try to illustrate this, I, I know a lot, a lot of us here, I, myself, enjoy football. So if, if we want to use football as an illustration to, to uphold the righteousness of God, to uphold his glory, is you're, you're an offensive lineman and you're tasked with keeping this defensive lineman from sacking your quarterback. I think what we picture ourselves doing is, is trying to block trying to block this defensive lineman, but oh, he just gets around us and sacks the quarterback. We, we, just mit, we just missed the mark. But this is the reality. If we're an offensive lineman, and if, if upholding Christ's righteousness and his glory is to defend this defensive lineman, what we have done is we have turned around and we have sacked the quarterback ourselves. That's how far we've missed the mark. As unjustified sinners, we were God's enemies. God hated us. We were rightly deserving of infinite wrath. We didn't just miss the mark. We were in complete rebellion. And this, that reality, that reality is what makes the phrase, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ so precious. The enmity that God had toward us has been abated. We have been reconciled to God. We have peace with God. Now there's, there's, so there's more coming. But this is amazing, an amazing reality that we have peace with God. By short wave application here, I would just say if you, if you don't have peace with God, run to Christ in faith and trust in His work on the cross. If you do have peace with God, rest in that peace. The second blessing of justification here in these verses is, read verse 2 with me. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The second blessing of justification is that we have entered into a realm of grace. We stand in grace. Through him, that is, Jesus Christ alone, we have obtained access by faith alone into this grace in which we stand. Now, there is a very distinct way in which grace precedes faith. I think you know this. We just saw our condition prior to justification. We were in complete and total rebellion against God, pursuing our own glory. And in that state, we didn't just one day say, oh, I think I'll believe in Jesus. No, grace preceded that. 
Grace came and pulled out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Grace opened your deaf ears. Grace pulled the scales off your blind eyes and allowed you to see the glory of God. Grace did all this. There's also a very distinct way in which justification by faith moves us from a standing in wrath to a standing in grace. What is grace? By simple definition, it is unmerited favor. Salvation comes by grace through faith. So as we meditate on on grace, let's let Scripture inform our thinking. Listen to Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, this is a precious reality. We are saved by grace alone, and we stand in grace alone. But this definition of grace as unmerited favor is insufficient. So what do I mean when I say the grace of God? I found this description of what? Of the grace of God by John Piper. Grace describes the truth that God and God alone is the decisive cause at the bottom of our election, our justification, and our daily life of faith and obedience. So there, by definition, grace is unmerited. There is nothing that we could do to earn it. And now there is nothing that we can do to retain it. Grace is brought to us in Christ. Grace keeps us in Christ. And grace will ultimately be the means of our entrance into the manifest presence of God. There is so much more we could say about grace. But this morning we want to focus in on how grace is emphasized in this passage. This grace in which we stand. We who are justified have a rock solid permanent position in the grace of God. Nothing can separate us from the grace of God. Listen to Romans 8. For if God, excuse me, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is in interceding for us. This is our position in grace. We don't just have peace with God. God is now totally and completely for us. We have entered a realm of grace. God has adopted us into his family. We are his children. And now there is nothing and no accusation against us that can hold water in God's court. The spirit of Christ is in us and he is interceding for us. We stand in grace. We were dead people walking with a sentence of guilty, and it was simply a matter of time before we would be subjected to eternal death. Jesse was a young man who had a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. 
Make sure you get that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's basically a disease in which the heart, it, the muscle gets too big and it just doesn't pump effectively. It's a genetic disease, so he, he didn't do anything to acquire it. But Jesse also had some problems with uh, drug abuse, and he ruined one of the valves in his heart by doing this. And so not only was his heart, did it not pump well, one of the valves in his heart had become essentially useless. Jesse had been told by doctors, you're going to die. Your heart, not only is your heart not pumping, the valve in your heart's not working. You're you're barely pumping any blood right now, and one day your heart's just going to stop. Jesse was given a death sentence. It was imminent. Jesse was going to die. But the doctor said the only thing, the only way that, the only hope you have is, is a heart transplant. And one day, Jesse got a heart. Jesse had a heart placed in, in, in his body. It was grafted into who he was. And it, it started beating and so Jesse had a, had a new sentence over his life. It was no longer imminent death. It was life. He had life. And now once Jesse had that heart placed in him, there was absolutely nothing he could do and nothing anyone else could do to have that heart taken from him. Even if he went out and went back to, he went out and killed, he could have done anything. No one had the authority to go in and take out that heart that was beating inside of him. Now, this is an imperfect illustration, but it, nevertheless, I want you to see that this is, this is how grace works. Once we have been planted in grace, there is nothing that we can do or that anyone else can do to move us from that standing in grace. This is scandalous grace. Now, I use that word with great caution because it's not actually scandalous, but I, I, nevertheless, I want us to our, our, our definitions to be shaken because I want you to see that just how radical this grace is. It's so radical that to the world it looks scandalous. Our justification, our being declared righteous, it's a present day verdict for a future judgment day. So this judgment of righteous is present and continuing. So you're gonna, we're all going to get up and sin tomorrow morning. And so the devil would say to us and the world would say, you're still sinning, you're still guilty. But because we're under grace, we're not. And because of that, again, it looks scandalous to the world. I think those of you who are maybe a little bit older than I am would think about O.J. Simpson's trial. Uh, For myself, I think about Casey Anthony's trial. For you kids that are too young to remember either... um, these are two very high-profile cases in which someone was murdered. And the defendant, at least in the eyes of the public, it looked like there was no plausible way in which they were not involved in these murders. They were high-profile cases. The America watched them. And as the trials came to a close, both these two people were declared innocent by the court. And it was scandalous. The, the world reacted and said, you know, how can these people who, who appear so guilty be judged innocent and walk away? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that our rebellion against the God of the universe and then being declared righteous and standing His grace appears infinitely more scandalous than these people being declared innocent. But the difference is... Theirs was scandalous, 
in the, in the trials of those murders, no one was held justly accountable for those murders. That's the difference in them and us. For us, someone was justly punished. Christ took the just punishment of our sin so that we might stand in grace. So our grace is not actually scandalous. It's just amazing. J.I. Packer and what it means to be in this realm of grace. I am graven on the palms of his hand. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he knew me first and continues to know me. He knows me as friend, one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off me, nor his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Now, this reality that we stand unmovable in grace has two implications, has implications for two types of justified people here this morning. There's two different traps that I think we've all been guilty into falling into one. One is that we go through our days feeling like God is angry with us and just waiting to judge us when we sin. This view of God comes from a poor understanding of grace. This view of God assumes that God's favor on our lives is somehow related to our performance. This assumption flies in the face of the doctrine of grace. Grace teaches us that not even our best Christian performance can increase our standing in grace, and not even our worst sinful failures can decrease our standing in grace. We stand fast and unmovable in the grace that God has placed us in. This gives us boldness to stand in the face of failure and praise the God of grace. This understanding of grace should free us from a fear, from a bondage to fear and shame and regret and projection. We're all sinners. We're all failing. We don't need to project some image of being the perfect Christian or the perfect mom or the perfect son or the perfect teacher or the perfect anything. We're under grace. So stand firm in that grace. Now the other danger we can fall into in relation to this standing in grace, and Paul would go on to address it head on in Romans 6, is that this doctrine of grace can lead us to treat sin cheaply. Now I don't think there's anyone here this morning who would say, I'm under grace so I can go out and live however I want and go head on into sin. I don't think there's anybody here this morning, but I know that I've been guilty and I feel that I'm not alone in being guilty of allowing ourselves to think little of our sin because we are abusing the doctrine of grace. It is our standing in grace that gives us the power to defeat sin. Now, so what happens when we allow a misunderstanding of grace to, to belittle our sin? I read this this week and I was cut to my heart. This is D.A. Carson on what happens when you don't have a grace-driven passion to pursue Christ and fight sin. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. 
We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Now, there's so much more we could say about grace and our fight with sin. But this morning, I just want you to evaluate, and I've evaluated myself. If you struggle with this feeling of guilt and shame and failure, if you feel like you're just not good enough, if you have to project an image of yourself, the good news is that you're, just, you're not good enough and you'll never be good enough, but Christ was good enough. He has poured out His grace on you and you now stand in grace. If you are here this morning and tempted to belittle and think little of your sin, meditate on this truth that grace has broken the power of sin over your life and that you now have the power to overcome that sin. Let that truth motivate you to fight sin and pursue Christ. So what's the third blessing of justification in these verses? Look down at chapter 5, verse 2 with me again. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The third blessing is that we get to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now there are two words I want us to focus in for just a moment on in this, this phrase. The first is the word rejoice. This word could and perhaps more accurately be translated boast. Now why would Paul use the word boast here? We know that generally this word has a negative connotation and it's associated with an arrogant person. What do people boast in? Why? Well, we know the things people boast in. They boast in their achievements, their ability, their money, their sports teams. Why do people boast in these things? They boast in these things because it's where they find their identity and their confidence. And in our boasting, we glorify what we boast in. There are people in this city who are completely consumed with boasting in a sports team. Every day they boast in their sports team. They boast in their sports team with their words, with their clothes, with their lawns, with their cars, with their money. They, everything about them boasts in their sports team. People find their identity in what they boast in. This is precisely why Paul uses this dangerous word to describe what we have the privilege of doing. Because of our justification, we get to boast in the glory of God because Christ has given us an identity in Him. We get to boast in the glory of God because we have found the one and only place in which we have a true identity, and that is in Christ. The second word in this phrase I want us to look at is the word hope. The Greek word that is translated into hope in our English word has a, has a different connotation than the typical way that we think about hope. Cambridge University defines hope as to express the feeling or wish that something will happen. So, by definition, hope implies a, a high degree of uncertainty. I hope I can get a new job. I hope I can get a raise. I hope I can get a new car. I hope I can buy a nicer house. I hope I can stay healthy. I hope I can be good enough. But this word hope here in Romans 5 has a very different connotation. 
Strong's concordance entry on this Greek word reads to anticipate, usually with pleasure, expectation, confidence. To quote Tim Keller, Christian hope is not a hopeful wish. It is a hope-filled certainty. Our confident expectation is in the glory of God. Hope in this verse is not something that we really want to happen and we'll be happy if it does. Hope in this verse is a happy confidence. It is a happy assurance. It is a happy expectation. So we rejoice in or we boast in our hope-filled certainty of what? The glory of God, right? So what is the glory of God? Well, this is a massive question. I think if you ask someone, one of the answers you might get is, well, Psalm says the heavens declare the glory of God. So the glory of God is in creation. Well, the glory of God is in creation, but that is utterly insufficient when we look at this context. We say that we have seen and that we rejoice in, we find our identity in, we boast in, our happy assurance is in, our confident expectation is in the glory of God. Well, if the glory of God is nature, then we are miserable people because nature can do nothing to justify us, nothing to put us in grace, nothing to even give us a reason for hope. So what is Paul referring to here? The glory of God is made most manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, Paul is speaking of preaching the gospel, and he says this, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts and given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most tangible representation of God's glory. Christ's righteous life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection, which purchased the redemption of his church, is infinitely more glorious than the glory of God in creation. And that is where our hope lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Tim, in, in Timothy, Paul greets Timothy with this message. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To hope in the glory of God is to hope in Jesus, which is to hope in the gospel. Romans 9.23 says, In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. The purpose of God in creation, judgment, and redemption is to make known the riches of His glory to His redeemed church. So again, to hope in the glory of God is to hope in Jesus. And what does this look like? Practically. Philippians 3.8 I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. And then what is the result of this kind of practical living? 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this he called you through our gospel 
so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hoping in, rejoicing in, boasting in our confident expectation in the glory of God magnifies His glory and draws us into this very glory. Now the primary application under this point is obvious. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I kept coming back to this central truth, but I also thought of some practical ways. How can we rejoice in this glory? And one of the ways I thought about, because we're in this mini-series again, is to meditate on and rejoice in the truths that were rediscovered in the Reformation. Namely, that salvation is found in Scripture alone. That salvation is through Christ alone. It's through faith alone. That it's by grace alone. That it's for God's glory alone. These are wonderful truths, and in meditating on them, we can rejoice in the glory of God. Another application here is tied to this the word rejoice. Again, we said earlier it could be translated boast. Not in an obnoxious, arrogant way, but in a biblical way, we are to boast in the glory of God. Quickly, I, you know, I in general, I root for American sport teams in international events. And in 2014, during the World Cup, I was at Pensacola, and there was we were sitting at a table discussing the World Cup. My friend David is from Brazil, and he just all of a sudden launched into this this um, ex- explosive expression that Brazil was just going to destroy the United States in the World Cup. Now I knew Jesse well enough to to know what was going on. I said, Jesse, who's Brazil's goalkeeper? She kind of looked at me. I said, oh, okay. Who, well, who's their who scores the most points for them? Again, silence. I, oh, okay. Well, who's their best player? Nothing. Their coach? Last game they played. What's the last game you watched? He had nothing for any of that. Now, what did this do? This did not discredit the glory of the Brazilian national team, but it showed two things. One, he he knew nothing of the glory of the Brazilian national team. And two, he had not tasted what it was like to enjoy watching the Brazilian national team. So for us to rejoice or to boast in the hope of the glory of God, we must have tasted this glory. If you have been justified, you are at peace with God, you stand in grace, you have tasted the glory of God. However, our rejoicing or our boasting should be ever deeper and more informed. So how can we accomplish this? I think you know that answer. It's what we spoke on last week. It's to look at the Scripture. As we said, the glory of God is most evident in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible points to or explicitly tells the gospel story. So pursue the Scriptures so that you can see the glory of God because that is revealed there. And you can rejoice more or boast more in the hope of the glory of God. Finally, by way of application, was to see that the hope, our hope in the glory of God is sure because the glory of God is unstoppable. What do we say the glory of God was in this context? The glory of God is the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is Christ doing? Christ is building His kingdom in and through us to display His glory. And nothing can stop 
this in the world, and nothing can stop this in Redeemer Church. Now, I'm not, be careful, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying nothing can stop Redeemer Church as a group from, from accomplishing something that we want to do. But you are Redeemer Church, and nothing can stop God's glory in you. Let's look again at Romans 8, 29, or excuse me, let's look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. No one drops out between justification and glorification. We sit here this morning, we can rejoice in the fact that our hope is in the glory of God. And thus, our, we have hope no matter what. We have hope even if, even if we lose our money, even if we lose our jobs, even if we lose our health, even if we lose a teaching elder, even if we lose a child, a mother, a father, a friend. We have a hope filled certainty in the glory of God because nothing can stop His glory. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Because of this, we have peace with God, we stand in grace, and we have hope in the glory of God. Rejoice in, boast in, the hope-filled certainty that God in Christ Jesus has justified us, that He is sanctifying us, and that He will glorify us, and that He is doing all of this for His glory alone. Since we have been justified by faith, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the blessings of justification. Father, we pray this morning that if anyone here is unjustified, that they would run to Jesus, their faith in His person and work, that they would be justified. For the rest of us here this morning, Lord, I pray that in seeing and savoring these, these blessings of justification, that we would rejoice in You, that we would rejoice in Your glory, we would rejoice in Christ, that we would rejoice in the Gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.